You've tuned in to TV You Grew Up With, where we interview the people who created the greatest TV shows ever made. Here's your host, Jim Harrell. Welcome to TV You Grew Up With. I am Jim Harold, and I am so glad to be with you today. And we have someone I'm so excited to talk to him because I've watched his game shows for years. I uh, grew up watching Tic-Tac-Doe, if you remember that that show from the 70s and the 80s. And he's also very well known for Gambit and a host of other uh, game shows that have been out there. He's had a great career in radio and, and kind of hobnobbed with a who's who of entertainment, including a certain king and a certain chairman of the board, who both of whom I'm sure we'll speak about in a little bit. I'm talking about Mr. Wink Martindale. He's joining us today on TV you grew up with. Welcome to the program, sir. Thank you, Jim. My pleasure. Thanks for the uh, invitation. Oh, no, I'm looking forward to this very much. Well, I know that probably most of the audience, this is TV you grew up with, know you primarily for your game show career, but uh, you had a strong career in radio, and I believe you got your start there. Can you can it kind of tell us where that started, how that all started for you? Sure, Jim. I uh, was born and raised in a little town of about 25,000 people called Jackson, Tennessee. It's about halfway between Memphis and Nashville. And uh, it just so happened that my Sunday school teacher uh, was the manager of the small radio station there, a little 250-watt station, WPLI. And I kept bugging him for, oh, months and months and months, a couple of years, as a matter of fact, when I was about 14 years old, to put me on the radio. Because from the time I was old enough to know what a microphone was, I knew what I wanted to do with my life. And that was to be on radio. And, of course, that led into television later. But uh, sure enough, one day he gave me an audition, and he was surprised and uh, that I had been uh, rehearsing and getting ready for that audition for a long time. My dad used to get a year's subscription to Life magazine mm -hmm. every uh, year at Christmas time as a bonus. And uh, I grew up reading Life magazine. And I would tear pages out of the uh, magazine, the advertisement pages. And I would go into the back bedroom, close the door, and pretend I was on the radio, and I would ad lib around these uh, commercials. It's great. So when Dick Wingate, my Sunday school teacher and radio station manager, sat me down in front of a microphone, little did he know I'd been practicing for a long time. So I kind of blew him away. He said, well, that's pretty good. If you come down here after school tomorrow, and uh, we'll bring the mayor in. The mayor owned the radio station. He can listen to you, and if he likes you, why, we'll hire you. So sure enough, after school the next day, I went down, did the same uh, uh, reading of news and commercials, and the mayor hired me for 25 bucks a week. And that's how I got started in radio. I was 17 years old. Now, that that's just fantastic. I love these origin stories. They're, they're fantastic. And it really seems like some people are just fated to do something. And I, I think that's certainly in your case. Well, yeah, you know, so many people, even to this day, uh, get into their 40s and 50s and go to work every day and they hate what they're doing. I was lucky in that I always knew what I wanted to do. And fortunately, I uh, got the chance to do it. And I've enjoyed a illustrious career for which I'm most grateful and uh, still doing it today. And uh, I'm very happy doing what I do. Now, uh, something that maybe a lot of people don't realize is that you actually not only had a great career in radio, you had uh, a record 
in the late 50s. It sold over a million copies. If folks aren't familiar with that, tell them about it because I think that's fascinating. Uh, you, you have a lot of disc jockeys at that time that were crossing over into music. For example, in the country field, I think of somebody like Jim Reeves. So, I mean, I think that was fairly common in those days or it happened a lot where disc jockeys might take a step out and, and do records. Tell us about your, your big hit. Well, when I was a DJ in Memphis, I uh, not only was on radio, but I was on TV doing a teenage dance party. I was sort of the Dick Clark of Memphis in the 1950s when American Bandstand was so popular. And uh, one of my guests on one of my dance party shows was Randy Wood, who founded Dot Records. And I had him on, and we talked about how he discovered Pat Boone and the Hilltoppers and Billy Vaughn, people like that. Mm -hmm. After the show was over, we went to dinner, and I had made a record locally there in uh, Memphis, and I lip synced it on my radio, on my TV show the day he was my guest. He kind of liked it. He said, how would you like to be on Dot? And I said, gee, that, that would, I was, I'd be over the moon to be on Dot Records. <laughs> so he bought my contract for $25,000 from the local record company. And uh, in March of 59, when I came out to California, I met with him one day at his office, and he found this piece of material that he remembered from 1946, right after the war, called Deck of Cards. It was written by a country singer named T. Texas Tyler. And uh, when Randy had his record shop in uh, Gallatin, Tennessee, he remembered selling an awful lot of those records. So he thought that uh, that would be good for me to redo. And so sure enough, in the summer of 59, we went into a studio on a hot July afternoon, made a record of Deck of Cards, sort of a pop version with a vo vocal group in the background. And he put it out. And um, frankly, I thought, you know, the top records of the day were Frankie Avalon's Venus and Stagger Lee by Lloyd Price. Right. And I thought, who's going to, kids buy records, who's gonna, what kid is going to buy a semi-religious talking record? But sure enough, we put it out that summer, and by July, or rather by September, it was uh, getting some airplay. A DJ in Boston, Bob Clayton, uh, number one morning man there, put it on the air one morning, and it just, uh, the, the switchboard lit up. It, it just caught people at the right time. And uh, it spread across the country like wildfire. And by November, it was number four on Billboard and Cashbox. And I got a call from the Ed Sullivan people to come back to New York and do it on the Ed Sullivan Show. And it was, uh, as I said, it was called Deck of Cards, story about a soldier who used a deck of cards in church because he didn't have a Bible during World War II. The ace was one God, the deuce, the Old and New Testament, and so forth. And um, it's, you know, it's timeless to this day. There have been several uh, hit records of it. Bill Anderson had a hit in the, in the uh, mid-60s on Deck of Cards. And it's been a hit in England. My version's been a hit in England on four different occasions. So it's sold over a couple of million. I got a platinum record for That's it. That's great. <laughs> and it's, uh, you know, it's one of those one of those lucky breaks in my career for which I'm most grateful. Another lucky break, I would think, would have been getting into game shows. How did that happen, making the jump from radio to television? Well, I'd been a re uh, rock jock for years, starting in Memphis. And I was morning man at KFWB, number one morning show in Los Angeles around 1964. I decided that I wanted to, uh, let me say this, I became addicted to a game show called Password with Alan Martin. Oh, yeah, sure. I'd, I'd rush home every day to watch uh, 
Alan Budden's Password at Noon. Just loved it. Such a simple show. And uh, I did some research, and I discovered that Alan Ludden uh, would go in two days a week, knock out ten shows in two days, and the other five days he'd play golf. And I thought, man, that's not a bad way to make a buck. <laughs> so I told my agent I'd love to try to, you know, host a game show. Would he send me on an audition next time one came available? So I got one at NBC in 1965 called What's This Song? And it only lasted a year, but it got me launched into the hosting of game shows. In fact, that first uh, show that I did, they called me Wynn Martindale, W-I-N, because the powers that be at NBC thought Wink was too juvenile sounding, so they knocked a K <laughs> off. And for one year, for my first show, I was Wynn Martindale. <laughs> but that got me started, as I said. And, of course, here it is, 21 game shows later, and I'm still going. <laughs> Why do people love game shows so much? Well, I think everybody loves to sit in the comfort of their den and 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 watch somebody else win. It's you know, as for a host, it's it's almost like playing Santa Claus. You get to give away somebody else's money and cars, and it doesn't cost you a dime. People love to see other people win, and uh, it always seems so easy when you're at home and you're watching a game. That's right. You look at it and you say, "Oh shoot, I could do better than that. I could, I could, I could do better than that contestant." But essentially, you know, it's it's a, it's fun. Most game shows, the simpler the better. Tic Tac Doe, for example, was you know crossing three X's or three O's, and you didn't have to have a lot of rules. Uh, I think the best game show ever invented was Jeopardy. I'll give you the answer. You give me the question. How much simpler can it be? Wheel of Fortune still on the air after thirty some odd years because of the utter simplicity of it. So. Uh, and that's a long answer to your question, why do people like game shows? But in a word, they love to be involved. They love, to, they love the, uh, the, uh, the, the, the idea that they, too, could stand up there and be contested and win as well. Well, I, I really am a fan because I really loved, I was in my preteen and teen years in the 80s and watched Tic-Tac-Doe pretty uh, religiously. And I even remember you had one contestant, he was a, a naval cadet or something like that. He was in the Navy and a long time contestant. He was like a top a top winner. And I remember he kept appearing and just really enjoyed that show. And I know millions and millions of other people enjoyed it as well. Yeah, that was Tom McKee. He was in the Navy and... Uh... He was in San Diego, and uh, he was on for 47 straight days. He won uh, $317,000 in cash, which at that time was an awful lot of money. Yeah. He won eight automobiles, and uh, he gave one to his missionary brother in Africa. He sold the other seven and bought himself a Mercedes with the license plate Tic Tac, T-I-C-T-A-C, <laughs> which he still has to this day. I still stay in touch with Tom. He's a very successful man in real estate back in back east. I believe it's North Carolina. And once a year, he still comes out to California and uh, plays in a golf tournament here in L.A. And we always get together for dinner while he's in town. So well, he, you... was, he was he he had the Guinness book. He was in the Guinness book of world records until uh, uh, the young man came along who won yeah, all from that Jeopardy. Money. Yeah, Ken. I can't remember his name. Yeah, it, yeah, yeah, exactly. And the thing is, is that, uh, uh, you know, I'm, I'm really a fan because I remember that because that's, that's fairly arcane going back. Now, uh, like, give me one of your favorite uh, game show anecdotes. It could be funny. It could be poignant. What's one of your favorite game show stories? 
Oh, gosh. I had several, but uh, the one that stands out in my mind that I've never forgotten after all these years, every ratings period in September annually, we would have an over-80s tournament on Tic-Tac-Toe where all the contestants were over the age of 80. And uh, during the interview segment, I happened to ask uh, Dr. Reba Kelly, who was a widower, and she was 87 years old, I said, Dr. Kelly, at your advanced age, do you ever think about dating? Mm -hmm. And without batting an eye, I don't know whether the producers gave her this answer or not, but without batting an eye, she said, Wink, actually, I have four boyfriends. I said, really? He said, yes, I have four boyfriends. I get up in the morning with Will Power. I take a walk with Arthur Itis. I come <laughs> home with Charlie Horse, and I go to bed with Ben Gay. <laughs> <laughs> and needless to say, those are the moments that hosts dream about having. Uh, we had to stop tape. You know, shows like uh, all game shows are are taped, are live to tape. Right. We had to stop for about thirty minutes while we composed ourselves. But uh, it was one of the funniest things that ever happened out of all the years that I uh, hosted game shows. Now you you said that people look at game shows and they look at the contestants and say, ah, I could do that. And, and obviously we know that it's much harder where you're there, you're under the lights, you're under the pressure. But uh, on the flip side of that, I think a lot of people look at game show hosts and they think, well, how hard that, can that be? Now, I think that that's totally inaccurate. And obviously we have people like you and people like uh, Bob Barker. You think about people going back like Bill Cullen, some of the great hosts that really stood the test of time. Um, like yourself, what is the difference between maybe someone who has did one or two game shows and somebody that had that same power like you and Barker and Cullen and Alan Ludden and people like that? Well, you mentioned my favorite of all game show hosts, Bill Cullen. I thought he was the very best. I don't think anybody ever did it any better than he did. And the reason he was so good was because he was, first of all, he had a great sense of humor. He, uh, was funny. He loved people, and I think that is the prime re prerequisite for a successful host, whether it be hosting game shows or, or hosting a talk show or whatever you, you name it. You have to be a people person. I love people. I love the interaction between myself and the contestants. When they would come out for that 60-second period that you have to talk to them, you try to bring out the best in them, try to get them to you know, be at ease, because most of them have never been on TV before. They come out, and they're nervous. And if you can make them feel at ease, they're going to give you a better show, and uh, everybody's going to be happier all the way around. So I just think that, that all of the people that you mentioned have those qualities. They love people. They love what they're doing. That comes across. Uh, I have never... Ever since, I guess it goes back to my radio days, uh, there's nothing I ever wanted to do other than be on radio and then later on television because uh, I love people and I love interacting with them. And uh, I've gotten to do that all these years. And uh, it just makes it makes me feel good. It makes me happy to to uh, bring out the best in people and especially happy when they answer questions correctly and you're able to award them, reward them with money and or cars or whatever the prizes may be. It just makes you feel good. Now, uh, we don't seem, I, I mean, I know there are uh, 
cable uh, game shows, and, and sometimes you have these big primetime game shows, like Who Wants to Be a Millionaire and things like that. But it doesn't seem to be, I seem to remember when I was a kid, there was always every fall season, the major networks would have some daytime. Uh, every year they'd have one or two new game shows. doesn't seem to be happening as much these days. Well, what do you think has changed the game show industry, if you will? Well, I don't know. Um, I don't think there's any particular reason for it. I know that right now, I think in the next two or three weeks, there's going to be uh, Mark Burnett has come up with a, with a show called 500 Questions. Oh, yes, I saw uh, that one. And the payoff on that's going to be over a million dollars. So occasionally they do come along. If you remember that abortion, I call it, that they did out of New York Times Square, it was a terrible show. Yep. So complicated about two years ago. Nobody could even, I couldn't even understand it. And Ryan Seacrest, who hosted the show, I don't think he, he even understood the rules. I have a personal friend uh, that I work with on, uh, my, a colleague of mine who works with me on developing game shows now. He worked on that show. I, I remember what the title was. You know the one I'm talking yeah, about. Yeah, I know right? it. I can't remember it either. <laughs> so we're not alone. Maybe that's why it wasn't successful. Yeah. We, not only do we know, not know how to play it, we can't remember the title. But I think that uh, I, I don't really look upon these uh, reality shows as game shows. I don't. To me, a, a, a game show is a, is The Price is Right or Tic-Tac-Doe or Jeopardy or Wheel right. or Match Game. You know, those are classic games. Uh, and I think we're in a cyclical business. Uh, here today, gone tomorrow. I think that right now we don't have a lot of those classic-type games on television. But I think, in my humble opinion, which, as Wayne Newton says, I do respect, I think that one of these days we're going to see a resurgence of the good classic game show on television, um, both uh, on broadcast television and, and on cable. Because let's face it, with all the what 200-some-odd uh, channels, everybody's looking for good quality uh, entertainment. And uh, to me, maybe I'm prejudiced towards game shows, but I don't think there is any better quality entertainment, just fun, down-to-earth entertainment than a good game show, if it's a good one. It has to be good. Bob Barker said something one time that I've never forgotten. He said, you know, you can be the greatest host in the world, but if the show's not good, no Bob Barker, no Alex Trebek, no Wink Martindale, whomever can save that show. But if it's a real good show and the host is just mediocre, it'll be a hit. It all comes down to the program. You know, the, the way it's developed and, and the fun that's generated by a good show, one that's compelling and entertaining. That's, so, a, long, that's a long answer to your question. No, no, no. That's why we have you on. So you, you talk. If, if people want to just hear me, I just do it by myself. <laughs> um, so, so going back to that point, and you touched on some of it, what makes a good concept for a game show in your opinion? Well, it's an idea. It starts with an idea. It's got to be a good, good idea, something that is uh, compelling and entertaining. And you, you take the, the germ of an idea, and as a producer, developer, and I've done this on many occasions, and I've worked with producers who've done it on many occasions, you take that germ of an idea and you develop it and make it uh, blossom, bloom, kind of like a rose. You keep working on it, making it better and better and better, uh, Make it as compelling as possible, 
and and it all depends on the idea. You know, I think that <laughs> I, I I think I think that most ideas have been tried at some time in the world of game shows, and yet people still come along like this new show that's going to be on the air soon called Five Hundred Questions. That's probably, I haven't seen it, I don't know what it is, but it's probably another version of Who Wants to Be a Millionaire. Mm-hmm. Sounds like you know, it. It's probably going to be stair steps to a million dollars. And uh, it just all depends on what the idea is. If you've got, if you got a good idea and you develop it correctly, uh, you can have a hit. At the same time, you might have a good idea and not develop it correctly and, 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 and with great interest. Uh, and it might uh, fall flat on its face. I want to talk to you about the exciting things you're doing today, but first I want to talk about a couple of friends of yours, and and one of those will lead to something you are doing today. Um, Let's talk about, you were from Memphis, and uh, you knew Elvis. Tell us a little bit about your relationship with Elvis and and just your impressions of the man. Well, I was, I was, Morning Man at WHBQ Radio. I did a show called Clock Watchers every morning from 6 to 9 a.m. And at night, from 9 to midnight, we had a DJ uh, who, in 1954, was playing black music for teenagers. This was before rock and roll and rhythm and blues. And uh, Dewey Phillips was his name. I happened to be at the radio station one night in July of 1954, joined some of my friends from Jackson, Tennessee, around the radio station. And all of a sudden, the switchboard lit up, and I wondered what in the world was going on in Dewey Phillips' studio, where he was doing a show called Red Hot and Blue. And it so happens that Sam Phillips, who founded Sun Records, had walked in with an acetate recording, not even a pressed record yet, of a song by a truck driver named Elvis Presley. The song was That's All Right, Mama. (laughs) Dewey put it on the air, and the switchboard lit up, and... When I walked in there, uh, Sam handed me the telephone number of Gladys and Vernon, uh, Elvis's mom and dad, and said, uh, call them and see if we can get Elvis to come down here. So I called uh, uh, Vernon and, and, and Gladys. She answered the phone, and they were listening. They heard the excitement being generated by That's All Right, Mama, by their son. And they said Elvis had been so nervous that his record was going to be played that night on Dewey Phillips' show that he went to see a double feature at the Suzor's Theater. So they said, we'll get in our truck and we'll go find him and bring him down to the radio station. So they did. Walked up and down the aisle of this theater, uh, the Suzor's Theater, and there was Elvis sitting there by himself watching this double feature western. They whispered to him about the excitement being generated by his record. Uh, They came down to the radio station. I met him that night, and uh, he remained a friend from that evening in 1954 till the day he died in 1977. And uh, he also became such a friend that I'm the only uh, person, in fact, I'm the only living person who was in that control room that night in 1954 uh, when Presley mania was discovered. Sam Phillips is gone. Dewey Phillips is gone. Uh, of course, Elvis is no longer with us. His mom and dad are no longer with us. Uh, he, did, he did me a great favor. He came on in 1956 on my teenage dance party on WHBQ-TV in Memphis and did the only filmed interview uh, that had been done uh, with him up to that time. He had just come back from from Hollywood doing Love Me Tender, his first movie, and he was doing a 
a charitable show at the Overton Park Shell there in Memphis. He wanted to promote that. And, of course, I wanted him on my show for obvious reasons. He was the hottest thing since baked bread. And uh, he came on, and we didn't even have videotape in 1956 at WHBQ Television. But somebody suggested, just Kinescope. happened to suggest, that I get a, 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 a photographer to come in and videotape, not videotape, but just make a 16-millimeter film Kinescope, of my right? interview. And so he set up in front of the jukebox where I did all my interviews and recorded it, and it lasted 25 minutes, and I still have it to this day. That is amazing. That is amazing. And then I wanted to talk to you about another friend of yours, um, the chairman of the board, Frank Sinatra, and you are doing something currently to celebrate uh, his uh, centennial. So tell us about uh, Mr. Sinatra, your relationship, and, and what you're doing in relation uh, to his great career. Well, we're doing it on Facebook. Uh, this, of course, as you said, is his centennial year. He would have been 100 this coming December. And uh, there's already been a four-hour documentary done on HBO, which was marvelous on Sinatra. And uh, back when I was working for Gene Autry, his station of the stars, his bellwether station here in L.A. called KMPC in the 70s, I uh, interviewed Sinatra and all of the friends and acquaintances who knew Sinatra. <clears throat> I used to do audio biographies in those days. And I had everybody come in who ever knew Sinatra that I could get to interview. And I kept all those interviews even after I left KMPC. So I have them to this day. And uh, even HBO, who found out about my interviews with Nelson Riddle and Don Costa and Sammy Kahn and Jimmy Van Heusen and Frank Jr. and Nancy Sinatra, everybody, they found out I had all these interviews. So they used several of my interview uh, clips on the HBO special, wow. which aired just last month, uh, the four-hour Sinatra special. So now I've taken a lot of those uh, those interview segments with all of these various people. And uh, we call it a Sinatra Saturday. Every Saturday we do like an eight to 10 minute segment on my Facebook uh, called Sinatra and Friends. And uh, it's been well received. We have thousands of people who look forward to it. We're going to do it for a total of 17 weeks. I think we're into our 13th week now. But I think that's what you're referring to. Yes, that's absolutely what I'm referring to. And, and I want to get... Uh, your your thoughts on this because it's kind of ironic um there is a clip floating around the internet that i believe if i'm correct you uh narrated back in the late 60s i think 67 talking about the future and talking about basically the precursor to the internet and things like email and so forth if i'm if i'm correct that's you yeah, so, that's right it, it yeah. was it was a uh, it was a look into the future we did it in 1969. It was uh, sponsored by Philco Ford. And it was uh, what life was going to be like in the 70s and 80s and 90s and into the uh, new uh, millennium. And uh, mm -hmm. most of the things, most of the ideas that uh, we pointed out in that, uh, in that film, which lasted about 30 minutes, was about 30 minutes in length, came true. Uh, we predicted that credit cards would be a thing of the future. And, of course, sadly, that's true. <laughs> hey, you must be getting into my mail every thing. month. <laughs> yeah, but that was an interesting, uh, interesting it was sort of, a, sort of like a, a documentary, but it was, 
it, it was one of the more interesting things that I've done. And it's, uh, yeah, it's been on the internet. You can still go to uh, the internet now and see it anytime. It's still out there. Yeah. And, and the reason I brought that up is it's ironic that you, you talked about this in the late sixties for this documentary. And now you are really, you know, you, you think about a lot of times, maybe people have had a great career on traditional media. They kind of just walk away and say, that's good. Uh, but, but you have not only you continue your, your traditional type of work, you've said, Hey, I'm going to embrace this thing. I'm going to embrace the internet and you're doing these segments, this, and I believe you have something called Wink's vault, uh, that you're doing on the internet as well. So it's kind of ironic that you are now embracing this technology and going out and sharing contact directly with the consumer rather than having to go through these uh, third parties. Yeah. My wife is the one who got me involved in the social media. Uh, I never really got involved in it until uh, she said, you know, if, if you stay in this business, you've got to, to keep up with the times. You've got to get into social media. So uh, I, had, I had two associates, Caleb Nelson and a guy named John Ritchie Jr. who came to my home one day. They're young guys who have been in the game show world for a number of years, very good producers. And they sat in my den one day and they said, you know, we'd like to do a Facebook on you. Uh we think that with your name, we can be very successful, and you'll have a lot of people who will like you and follow you on Facebook. And uh, they said, you know, we can do it for two or three years, and it may get to the point where we can monetize it and play games, give away prizes, and make a few bucks on it. And I thought, well, why not? So we started the Facebook, and they have just done a fabulous job. And uh, I also Twitter every day. And um, I've found that it's, uh, you know, it's, it's a wonderful way to stay in touch with the people who have, who have enjoyed my work over the years. Well, I, I mean, we've absolutely enjoyed this discussion. You've been so gracious to give us uh, uh, some time to, to talk about your illustrious career, uh, the things that have happened in the past and the things that are happening currently and into the future. So if people want to catch up with Wink Martindale today, the Sinatra project, the Wink's Vault project, your Facebook project, where would they go and what would they look for? Well, just come. Uh, I'm, I'm on Facebook, and I, I'm easy to find on Facebook. I'd love to have your listeners uh, check me out there. Uh, I'm at, at Wink Martindale on uh, Twitter. Love to have them uh, follow me every day on Twitter. And um, that's about it. I can't, uh, can't think of anything else. Well, uh, that's plenty good, and I'll agree, very easy to find. I'm looking at your Facebook page right now, headlined by Sinatra and Friends, and listen to this uh, last one, and it's very good stuff, particularly if you're like me, a fan of Mr. Sinatra. And Mr. Martindale, thank you for joining us today on TV You Grew Up With. Thank you, Jim. It's been my pleasure, and I appreciate the invitation to be with you. Thank you so much. And thank you for tuning in to this edition of TV You Grew Up With. And as they say in TV, stay tuned. We'll talk to you next time. Bye-bye, everybody. Mm-hmm.